Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 36 in the second half of American history. In the 35th podcast, we are still continuing our discussion on the Second World War. We switched gears and having completed our review of the events of the European theater of war, again, from the American perspective in the Second World War, podcast number 35, we looked at the Pacific theater. Uh, focusing specifically on the invasion of the island of Iwo Jima with the uh, world's most famous photograph taken of the flag raising at Iwo Jima. We also looked at uh, further gains in the island hopping campaign and then the impact of the Manhattan Project's successful creation of not one but two nuclear weapons and the reasons why they were dropped, and then the implications of using those weapons to end the Second World War. So in our 36th podcast here, this will be the last in our mini-series on the Second World War from the American perspective. We're going to look primarily at two things. One is the reasons for the Allied victory. And then secondly, even though, again, I focus more of this on this uh, second half of world history, it is still extremely important to incorporate the lessons learned from the discovery of what would become known as the Holocaust. So in terms of the reasons for Allied victory, first off, in terms of the economic capacity, that was absolutely key. America, in short, was able to raise the money. Notice I did not say that America had the money. We were able to raise the money. Like practically every other country involved in the conflict, we were in the throes of the Great Depression until the war started. America did not have the money for this conflict. And to say that it was expensive was an understatement. Adjusting to 2016 dollars, the Second World War cost just the American taxpayers $300 billion. So mind you, we're not involved in the conflict in 1939, specifically on September 1st, when the Second World War breaks out. We don't get involved at all in 1940. We don't even have the knock on our door of us eventually getting involved in the war until December 7th of 1941. From there, the moment we declare war on Japan and then subsequently Germany and Italy, the president at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, will begin to write checks to fund the war in a way or at a volume that had never been done before in our own history. To put this into perspective, when I write or I I mentioned that Franklin Roosevelt wrote $300 billion worth of checks to fund the war, to put that into perspective, that was twice as much as the federal government 
had spent since George Washington's first term all the way up through Franklin Roosevelt's immediate predecessor, Herbert Hoover, who was the 31st president of the United States. So put another way, of all the dollars from the very first money spent by George Washington in his first term as president of the United States, all the way until the last check that Herbert Hoover wrote before he left office on March 4th, 1933, Franklin Roosevelt had matched those prior presidents dollar for dollar and doubled them. But it was paid for, which begs the question, where was the money coming from? The money was coming from, depending upon where you're listening from, you. For much of the same reason that the federal government today can spend money it doesn't have. People are constantly buying government, American government bonds because they know there's a 99.9% chance that when they turn those bonds in to get their cash back, that they're going to get that money back, plus a little bit of interest, depending upon how much money was invested and how long the government was able to keep the money. Heck, enemies throughout our history have bought American bonds because they know we're good for it. We have that uh, top rating that in terms of our in terms of our credit score if you want to look at it that way that people know that we're good for the money so americans were buying war bonds literally of the old expression used the expression like they were going out of style it was also paid for by a skyrocketing collection of income tax and a significant portion of those americans paying the income tax was none other than rosie the riveter the moms were spending inordinate amount of money Number one, because their husband or father or sons were not at home to help out with the household to the point that when you take that example that I mentioned a few seconds ago about Rosie the Riveter, between 1939 and 1945, over 11,000 supermarkets were built so that Rosie, upon getting off work off of her shift, would be able to run to the grocery store get the groceries she needed to be able to feed the kids when she got home. And if you think for a moment that Rosie was interested in trying to get all the original ingredients to make something from scratch, think again, because a new type of food was hitting the marketplace that Rosie the Riveters could, Rosie's the Riveter could not get enough of. And that was the type of dinner where she could come home, flip on the oven, throw it in the oven, bake it until whatever time was allotted in the directions, grab it out, cool it off, and feed it to the kids. It would become what's known as the TV dinners, the idea of creating ready-to-eat meals. This, All of this money coming in truly is what brought America out of the Great Depression. So those podcasts before we started the Second World War where I was talking about the Great Depression and I ended it with not the fact that it's over, but that the Great Depression will loom on, but what will bring America out of it was not any one specific program that was started under the National Recovery Act of Franklin Roosevelt, not minimizing his impact, but what really drew America out of the war was, this, or excuse me, out of the Great Depression was the Second World War. Consider that for every B-17 that was shot down by the Germans, Italians, or the Japanese, the United States had two more rolling off the assembly lines somewhere in America. 
the average United States soldier by 1945 had four tons of supplies at his or her disposal. What I mean by supplies is not only, of course, just ammunition. I'm also talking about extra blood, prosthetic limbs, food, water, clothing. American soldiers were awash in what they needed. No, not every soldier at every place in the theaters of war had exactly what they needed. But what I'm getting at is America was producing far more than the average soldier was using on a daily basis to the point that we had such a massive amount of material available at the end of the war because again logistically we were not always able to get what our soldiers needed at every point along during the course of the war but while the average u.s soldier 1945 had at 8,000 pounds or four tons of supplies at his disposal the average japanese soldier had literally roughly two pounds by the war's end the united states commanded over 50% of the world's industrial capacity. That was more than two times the rest of the world combined. What's more is not just money and production. The United States also had raw human power. The morning of December 7, 1941, there were 165,000 registered soldiers in America's armed forces. By August of 1945, as Stephen Ambrose writes in his book, Citizen Soldiers, on page 332, by 1945, there were over 8 million. So from 165,000 soldiers to north of 8 million, just over three years later. What's more was technology and weaponry, radar, sonar, depth charges, these were not necessarily brand new technology as the war broke out, but we fast forwarded their technological capacity <clears throat> and ability to use them. And yes, those sometimes came at a drastic price. Consider that in the first 16 months of the war, 12,000 American soldiers died in battle, but 64,000 died in U.S. ammunition factory accidents. By the end of the war, there were 6 million injured or killed in just weapons production for the entire conflict. But there was no OSHA in those days. There was no greedy individuals getting having an accident at work that turned around to try to sue the corporation for as much money as they could get. We were at war, and we were doing everything that we could, in some cases very dangerously, to try to persevere and come out on top of this war. Needless to say, too, that, and not to understate this, is the impact of science. It has been argued that there's no conflict in human history where the application of science had such a profound effect as during the Second World War. Needless to say, of course, because of the development of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. And from there, just a short time later, we will get into the world of thermonuclear weapons, which are very different from nuclear weapons, as I will flesh out when we get into the first outline, or excuse me, first podcast after the Second World War, the 37th podcast, that of course will come right after this one. But because of these 
advanced weapons of warfare. It is debated by some political scientists and, and historians when the Cold War, the very next war that America will find herself in, whether it started back on September 1st, 1939, simultaneously with the beginning of the Second World War, or did the Cold War begin immediately upon bombing of Japan, not once, but twice, because that nuclear genie was out of the bottle and was never going to go back in the way the only other country that fared somewhat, somewhat well after the war, the Soviet Union, as the Soviets would then clamor to get a piece in the fruits of that nuclear genie. This is why, again, upon the completion of the Second World War is the immediate dawn of the Cold War. Finally, to bring this Second World War to a close, I do, of course, as I mentioned earlier, want to discuss this idea of the Holocaust, more specifically, genocide. Genocide. Please note that when the Americans and our allies started entering extermination camps, concentration camps, and ghettos starting in April 1945. It is interesting that on April 12th, 1945, at the exact same time, our five, three of our five-star generals, Omar Bradley, George Patton, and Dwight Eisenhower entered the same concentration camp. And if it's interesting is if you look at their memoirs, as I have read them page by page, if you go to the entries on page on, on April 12th of 1945, all three generals, of course, write their initial impact, their, their ghastly reaction to this systematic machinery of murder. It's interesting and perhaps because they're product of their times where they try to come off strong, that they were able to hold it together while their colleagues next to them had a little bit more of a difficult time. In other words, Eisenhower wrote that he could keep it together, but boy, Bradley and Patton, they had a tough time with it. Patton said the same thing. Patton did okay, but boy, Bradley and Eisenhower, they struggled. So again, product of the time, the men wanting to appear strong as they faced, again, something that largely they never could have been prepared for. In fact, to simply call that murder just didn't work. Murder Murder is what we read about in the newspapers when one or up to a handful of people are unfortunately killed by somebody else. But this wasn't just one other person. This just wasn't a few people killed. The amount of people killed is in the millions as we know. And it took more than just Adolf Hitler's hatred. That's why there would eventually be a term called genocide that would then retroactively be applied to the Holocaust. The term genocide, for example, does not actually get coined as a term until 1955. But looking at the murder of 6 million Jews, mind you, that was only 20% of Adolf Hitler's goal. Hitler's goal. In 1918, roughly 9.5 million Jews populated the continent of Europe. 
by 1945, three and a half million remained. Now that does not include, or that does, does not include, excuse me, the millions that would be able to leave the continent before the clause of the Holocaust eventually caught up with them. I have used the term ghettos, concentration camps, and extermination camps, and that's also something I want to clarify. Because again, they are not interchangeable terms, despite the fact, of course, the negative implication, what all three mean. But ghetto was the term that within the confines of many city blocks throughout the major cities of northern and eventually central and southern Europe, where Jews and Nazis that had turned Germans with and eventually other nationalities with physical or mental handicapped ghettos is where they would be fenced in to be stripped of the rights stripped of their goods stripped in some cases all the way down to their clothing and then the decision would be made by the leaders of those ghettos whether these individuals on the left would go to the concentration camps, those on the right would go to the extermination camp. Again, two different camps, despite the fact of a massive overlap of what was done at both camps. But by definition, the concentration camps are where the victims would go to be worked to death or, or eventually have brutal inhumane experiments, scientific experiments, with using those victims as the actual product, as the word to use them for the experiment itself. It was ghastly. However, it was done with such systematic discipline and the knowledge that was gained from it that America actually went after those scientists and brought them to the United States under disguise to try to learn what they learned from the inhumane experiments they were conducting on those human beings. And if you're not familiar with this or you're doubting me, look up the term World War II Operation Paperclip, and that's where you can learn more about those scientists who were brought over with all of their extensive notes of the results of these inhumane experiments. Again, primarily done in the, at the concentration camps. The extermination camp is, as its name or title in, insinuates, extermination meaning to die. That's the reason why the life expectancy in the extermination camps was measured in hours or days, whereas a concentration camp, it could be days or weeks, or in some cases, months, rarely years. But for, again, we'd have enough evidence of those that actually survived far longer than the life expectancy would have indicated otherwise. There are so, There is so much written, and rightly so, on the victims of the Holocaust, but it was not until a couple of decades later, after the Holocaust came to be discovered and brought out through via the press and people's testimony, that we also then, and again, rightly so, looked at something, an aspect of the Holocaust that oftentimes wasn't focused on. And that was the traits of the Holocaust survivors, not just the victims, but the traits of the survivors. Those that were in the concentration camps far longer than the average life expectancy was, 
somehow survived the deportation to the extermination camp and were able to live to tell about it. Extensive studies started to be done on those that were willing to speak out as to their experiences in one or more concentration and or extermination camps. And it, the research that was done boiled it down to three main traits of Holocaust survivors. Now, that doesn't mean there are not more traits than this. It doesn't mean that the, you, the listeners, may ag agree that all of these three, these three things are actual traits. I listened to, unexpectedly, a Holocaust survivor who spoke to my class several years ago, but confirmed that these three traits were accurate in his mind. What I mean by unsuspecting, un or I wasn't aware of it, is because that was the truth. There was a student of mine. I don't want to say whether the student was in Chicago when I taught for, for many years or in Cleveland, Ohio. But there was a student that took my first half of world history. When I say a student, he was a returning adult student. Uh, he didn't have to take the classes. He was retired. Just a wonderful gentleman. I looked forward to seeing him in the uh, classes when he showed up. And he was there at most of the classes for world history. He didn't raise his hand to say much unless no other student raised their hand. And if he was going to raise his hand to answer the question, the moment a student raised their hand, he would pull his down out of respect. But I so leaned on him for his expertise and just his, his optimism, enthusiasm for life itself. He then took me for the first half of American history, took me for the second half of world history, again, covered the Holocaust in the second half of world history, never said anything about it. It was in the fourth class, though, the second half of American history, when I started to bring up points that I wanted to cover about the Holocaust. And this student, again, that didn't say anything before in the second half of world, raised his hand and said, can I say a few things about the Holocaust? And I said, sure, I've come to know you now a couple of years. What's your involvement with it? How do you know about it? I'm assuming something he's read, somebody he knew. It was only at that time that he raised, he was wearing short sleeve flannel shirt and he raised his shirt up and showed me the tattoo with his number on it. And he repeated the number to me without looking at it and said where he was at least one of the places where he was stationed and victimized on a systemic basis. Having no idea how to respond, I also knew the only way I could respond. And that was for me to merely point to the front of the room where he shook his head and, and waved his hand, no. And I said, go ahead then and please speak. And he said, how much time do I have? I said, as much time as you want. And I went with the rest of the students who were already seated and I sat down to learn what the student had to share. And it was mind numbing. For whatever reason, while when the class was over and the Holocaust wrapped up my discussion of World War II that I spend roughly a week and a half to two weeks on when I cover it in American history, there were several weeks of the course, obviously, that remained to get into the Cold War, the 1950s, all the way up to the present. But that student never showed up again. I never once saw the student in the hallway, in the student commons era. I never know, knew 
what happened to him. But these three traits that he confirmed are as follows. First is an unfailing drive to live despite the horror. An unfailing drive to live despite the horror. They want to bear witness to what they have been seeing is the way it was once described to me. Secondly, second trait, an absolute reality of the horror. There was no inclination to try and, quote, think otherwise, end quote. These were the individuals who did not attempt to sugarcoat anything, who did not attempt to see the good in what was happening. They recognized it for what it was, which one could say then somewhat dovetails with the third trait of these victims, the rapid decision-making capability. They would make decisions, often very dangerous ones, that ultimately, because they were successful, extended their life another day. But they engaged in rapid decision-making and had absolutely no capacity for second-guessing. So again, those three traits, unfailing drive to live despite the horror, to the absolute reality of the horror, no inclination to try and think otherwise, and then three, this rapid decision-making capability with no second-guessing. Please note, too, that in no way am I trying to minimize what Hitler did. Please know that as time marches on, history will find that Stalin and of the Soviet Union and Mao Zedong with his great leap forward, which would nothing more than great leaps backwards, but sadly those two dictators, their numbers would dwarf Adolf Hitler's. Which then begs the question, why genocide? Now that we have that term starting in 1955, why genocide? Number one, because of social engineering becoming more and more common as the 20th century unfolded. One might ask, where would Hitler come up with such an idea to sterilize people and to sterilize them against their will? Sadly, the United States, more specifically, the United States Supreme Court helped. If you don't believe me, look up the court case of Buck versus Bell, B-U-C-K, versus Bell, B-E-L-L. There's roughly a four minute and 30 second video that summarizes Buck versus Bell. And you will see how one of the one of the most great, the greatest legal minds of the United States Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes, when even after Carrie Buck had proven herself to be not in any way, shape or form mentally disabled, he would not believe her and wrote in his opinion, which is on the court records, that three generations of imbeciles, three generations of idiots, in other words, is enough. And sorry, Miss Buck, that you were sterilized against your will, but the institution was trying to do society a favor. And if you have a hard time stomaching what you read, there's nothing to hear. But if you have a hard time enough stomaching what you're reading, at least go down to the last page. When in horror, you will see that that infamous Supreme Court case 
to date, as of June of 2023, has never been overturned. What's also the reason for genocide that they will substantiate nationalism. And a long history can make nationalism all the more intense. Please note, too, that the application of science, such as Zyklon B, the creation of the most efficient crematoriums, etc., would also add to the reason why genocide could take place. Third aspect, propaganda, specifically propaganda through the media. media. And finally, and most importantly, is if you, nothing else you pull away from my discussion of the Second World War, specifically on the rise of Adolf Hitler, is know that genocide can also happen because sadly the perpetrators of it are usually experts at taking extremely gradual steps to the eventual elimination of people's freedom. When we fail to acknowledge somebody's freedom being stepped on, we eventually are going to find ourselves on this perilous path of whatever and wherever the country's dictator wants to take the victims. After the Second World War, there would be 405,399 American soldiers killed. A total of 16 million battle deaths alone. 60 million total, three quarters of them civilians, as put in conventional and unconventional war by Tom Mikaitis. And if you think now that this is all over, brace yourself, because between 1945 and 2000, the world will witness another 120 million deaths due to warfare. So thank you for listening. That wraps up our mini-series, if you'll call it that, on the Second World War. Come back now for the 37th podcast as we're going to find what America and where America finds herself and what we intend to do as the only superpower that came out stronger after the war than when we entered it. If you have any suggestions or comments on this episode too, please feel free to go to my website and email me, especially too if you have book suggestions. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Have a great week.